Imagine with me, if you would, a young man who has just gotten hired at McDonald's. Smell the oil on the back burner. Imagine this young man in McDonald's with the promise of a day's worth of minimum wage. It could be better, of course, but it could also be a lot worse. This young man gets to work every day at 6 a.m., and he works 12 hours until 6 p.m. He does so with his eye on the prize because he knows that every single dollar that he makes will help him to pay tuition when full quarter rolls around. And so this young man gets to McDonald. The clock drums in the corner. Customers walk in and he hears repetition. He hears, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order today? The young man hears Big Mac, large fries, and a McFlurry. He makes the orders. He works hard. He sweats, but he knows there is a prize at the end. And so he works, and soon, before he can catch his breath, it's mid-morning, and his boss brings in a new co-worker. He introduces him to the rest of the team, and then the original employees help the new co-worker as they continue to work at McDonald's. And then the manager comes in three more times, each time bringing in a new worker to this branch of McDonald's. And all of them, although they don't like the interruptions, make do and they work because they know at the end of the day there is a prize that they will claim. So the young man lines up when it's 6 p.m. They order themselves from the person who was in at 6 a.m. to the person that the boss brought in at 5 p.m. And then one by one, beginning not with the young man who started at 6 a.m., not with the young man who woke up at 5.30 a.m. so he could get to work on time, but beginning with the person brought in at 5 p.m., the boss gives each of them a $100 bill. And he does it in plain view of all the other employees. He goes and he gives a $100 bill to the one who started at 5 p.m. Then he goes to the next one who was brought in at 3 p.m., gives him a $100 bill. Then the one who came at lunchtime gives him a $100 bill. All the way to this young man we just spoke about, this sophomore at Walla Walla University who is working at McDonald's so that he can pay his tuition in the fall. And when he comes to this young man who has been working and he has been slaving away, he is given a hundred dollars just like everyone else. The room stops. Everyone looks at the boss and they're expecting a TV crew perhaps, to burst through the doors and to say it's a prank. They're waiting to to see if this is undercover boss and if someone from headquarters is going to come and say, hey, 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 
we did this just to see how you would react. But in fact, here is a bonus for you, my friend. We've paid all your tuition for your four quarter. Here's a new car because we know that you walk to work. And none of that happens. It's not undercover boss. It's not a prank. The boss has decided to pay every single person, regardless of whether they worked for 12 hours or whether 11th hour worker, $100. If we read this story in the news, all of us would be incredulous. We don't like to feel as though we have been unfairly treated. It's why children's birthday cake cuttings are often the site of explosive emotions. It's why five-year-olds would all of a sudden have PhD-level ability to discern whether the slice of cake that you gave them was the same as the one that their friend has. Nobody likes to feel like they have been cheated. It's why older siblings will compare the benevolent, velvet-gloved treatment that their parents are giving to their siblings to the iron-fisted treatment they had when they were growing up. And they will say, it's not fair. You're treating us unfairly. It's why students will rightly query a teacher if they give an extension to some people in the class, but say to the rest of the class, you need to hand in your assignment on time. Nobody likes to feel like we have been unfairly treated. And none of us will abide equal rewards for unequal work. And yet, as we begin our series on the parables, we are going to a parable that Jesus gives, often uh, titled Parable of the Laborers in the Vineyard, and we will see that this parable has a disquieting effect on the way that we live as people. It has a challenging effect on the transactional view that most of us harbor in our bones. This parable is challenging. Parables in general and the parables that Jesus gives in the gospel invite us to think the parables invite us to think critically about the worlds that we have constructed and that we live in without uh, thinking much about. The parables of Jesus free us, if we will allow them, from our cultural shackles. They give us the ability to be freed from our, our self-deceptions, and they enable us to, to discern more clearly how God works in the world and the ways of the kingdom of God. Parables, my friends, are not tame. If you thought they're going to do the parables of Jesus, couldn't they do something more fresh? Parables are not tame. Now, the parable we will look at this morning, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, is recorded only in the Gospel of Matthew. He's the only one that puts pen to paper, and records this story. Now, unlike the parable of the sower that some of us may be familiar with if you've grown up in church, if you've read your Bible, 
In this parable, Jesus does not give any explicit interpretation when he gets to the end of the story. And that is the beauty of it. And it's also the challenge. Because there is no explicit interpretation, scholars have tried to figure out who Jesus is talking about and what the main parameters of this parable are. And today we're going to look at it and perhaps be surprised as we see another facet of this parable that Jesus gives. Now, before we get there in Matthew chapter 20, if you have your phone, you can get to Matthew chapter 20. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. Before we get there, it's important to know, and this is said so often, but it bears repeating again today that the chapterization and diversification of the Bible sometimes puts false pauses in stories that don't exist. And so we have Matthew chapter 19 and then Matthew chapter 20. But if we read the entire story linearly, we will see that the end of Matthew chapter 19 is important for us if we're going to understand this parable in Matthew chapter 20. So at the end of Matthew chapter 19, we find that Jesus Christ has been talking and he's been enacting the kingdom of God. And then Peter asked this question, and it's a question that many of us have asked Jesus in one form or another, even if we haven't used the same words. This is the question Peter asked when he thinks about all that they have sacrificed for God. He says, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter is very transactionally minded. He says, we've given stuff up for you, Jesus. What are we going to get in return? And Jesus responds at the end of Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, and he tells them some of the things that they will get, but he ends with this rather cryptic answer. He says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean the first will be last and the last will be first? I want to know what I'm going to get out of being in a relationship with you. I want to know what's in it for me as a disciple. Don't tell me that I'm going to be last if I'm first, and if I'm first, I'm going to be last. Tell me what that means. Now, if you read the Bible carefully and you read this uh, story carefully, you will notice that Jesus has already been demonstrating this subversive principle that those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a couple of stories. One of them shows Jesus Christ um, taking children who are in that society without agency, without power, and without voice, and bringing them to him. And so Jesus Christ shows the subversive nature of the gospel by raising those who are last and making them first. He also shows in a story with a healthy, wealthy, uh, young Jewish man who comes to Jesus wanting to be a disciple, and Jesus allows him to recognize how difficult discipleship is and walk away that just because you are a man and healthy and wealthy, it does not mean that you'll be given any privilege in the kingdom of God. He is subversive. And so he's already been demonstrating this principle 
before he expands on the answer in Matthew chapter 20 through this parable. So if you're with me, uh, go to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at this parable of the laborers. Now, this parable is set during harvest time, and that makes sense because there is a laborer and he has a vineyard, and he needs people to help harvest the vineyard. And so this farmer hires seasonal workers, and he gets into a contract with them. It's a negotiated settlement, and they agree on the price that each of them will be paid. And so he goes to the market, and he gets those who are waiting at 6 a.m., and he says, my friends, I am going to pay you $100. I'm going to pay you one denarius. I'm going to pay you what's fair. And they say, cool, cool. We'll take it. So they go to the vineyard, and they start to work, and then this farmer hires new workers through the day until the last hour of the day, and just like our McDonald's story, pays them all the same amount. And when the earliest workers receive the same amount in Matthew chapter 20, verse 11, they complain. The Bible tells us that they complained against the landowner, and guess what? I would too. If I worked and someone else got paid the same amount of me for doing one-tenth or one-eleventh of the work that I did, you better believe I'm going to complain. In fact, we live in a country where it was not until 1963 that women could be paid the same amount as men for the same work. And the day that complain, you better believe they complain. And were they right to complain? You better believe they were right to complain. And so when I read this story, it's challenging me. I have questions just spouting out of my head. If we could have had graphics of question marks popping over my head while I read, they would not have been sufficient for the credulity I felt reading what is happening. But when you read the story, the landover, the landowner does not relent and he does not back off and say, you know what, you're right. I've been unfair. Instead, the landowner responds to the question of the 12-hour worker, and he says, friend. And this is when reading the parables gets juicy. Because you think, oh, he's about to relent. He says, friend. But when you read the Bible closely, you realize it's an ironic term in the gospel. Because in all three cases where a parable is told and Jesus Christ has someone in the parable saying, friend, the person who is being referred to as friend is always wrong. It's the same way that if you're in the South, I have been told, and if you are with someone and you make a point in the southern part of the United States of America, and they respond to your point and they say, bless your heart. If you've not grown up in the South, you may think this is good. But if you've grown up there, you recognize that they are patting you on your head for the stupidity of your remark. And so just like a Southerner may say, bless your heart, this landowner says to the 12-hour worker friend, and then he gives him his response. Let's read it together in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, in verse 13, but he answered one of them, and he said, friend, 
I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That's a contract. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. And verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And then he concludes in verse 16 of Matthew 20, so the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. I'll be honest, this is not helping me to feel any better about this parable. I am firmly on the side of the 12-hour worker, not the 11th-hour worker. In fact, if you are watching and you are with a family or with some friends, ask them, whose side are you on in this parable, the 12-hour worker or the 11th-hour worker? Because I am not on the side of the 11th-hour worker, and I am furious with this landowner. And yet, we find a few things before we try to pull out some threads in this story. Let's state the obvious. First of all, this story, this parable, is not giving Christians a model for employment practices. And it's important to say that. This story should not be used to justify unequal wages based on gender, race, age, or any other discriminating factor. This is not a model for Christians in how to run their business. Paying people the same, regardless of their work, regardless of their experience, regardless of their output, is going to lead to labor strife. Paying people for non-performance isn't a recipe for business success. Back to the parable. A couple of things that we notice. In verse 15, uh, the, the landowner says, Is, are you envious because I am more generous? Or more literally rendered, is your eye evil because I am good? And like I said at the beginning, this is mirroring chapter 19 when Jesus Christ says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And so let me walk you through the wrestling that I did with this text this week. Wrestling. You know, you have the opportunity to speak the Word of God, and I have this opportunity every week, and I'm telling you, there are times I wrestle. And I thought to myself, okay, if you've grown up in church, you recognize some of the surface-level readings, right? The first will be last, the last will be first, God is generous, great, we got it. But as I read and wrestled with this text, beyond God is gracious, God gives us more than we deserve, I thought, what else are you telling me? Because I don't like this parable. I don't like it. It messes with the way that I've grown up. It messes with my values. And perhaps if you're watching this morning, like me, you are troubled by the repercussions of this parable. You have questions about the apparent unfairness of the owner. You 
identify with the 12-hour workers, not with the 11th-hour laborers. You have lived a life where you have put in a full-day shift, where you have worked hard, made sacrifices, where you worked in the summer so you could go to school, where you worked dual jobs so you could put your kids in Christian education, where you did the right thing when others took short, shortcuts, you did the right thing. Your entire life has been the life of the 12-hour worker, and there is no way you're going to accept this parable. And I think this story pushes us, it pushes me certainly, to an, un an uncomfortable truth. And that is this, that perhaps none of us in the economy of the kingdom of God are 12-hour workers who through our work can appease God that none of us in the kingdom of God, through our goodness, through our pedigree, through our social standing, through our religious knowledge, through our normative lives, are able to claim anything from God. And if we read this parable and we think, Perhaps there are people who are 12-hour workers and they're 11th-hour workers, and because I've been in the church my whole life, because I've done the right thing my whole life, surely I'm the 12-hour worker, and my uh, crazy sibling, who has been living a wild and profligate life, probably that's the 11th-hour worker. Maybe the truth is that none of us are 12-hour workers. And so I think this story suggests three radical truths. And the first is what I've said, that all of us, regardless of our pedigree, our religious knowledge, regardless of our standing in society, regardless of the size of our bank accounts, in the economy of the kingdom of God, we are all 11th hour laborers in need of grace. Every last one of us are 11th hour workers in need of grace. None of us deserve anything from God. He owes us nothing. There is no transactional value to our work that God needs to reward. And I think understanding this frees us in our lives. And honestly, as I thought about this parable, I thought perhaps there are going to be some people who are like me who in taking stock of this parable and in applying it to your life, will realize you are begrudging God's grace in the life of some people around you. That you are looking at how God seems to be given his grace and making his reign shine on the good and on the evil, and you are begrudging his grace in the lives of other people who you deem as unworthy. And so you are silently arguing with God that his generosity is far too much for that group of people or for that person, and they surely should not have as much as you are giving them. And yet when we read the Bible, there is just this train that is moving and that gathers speed from the beginning of the Bible. That first God calls Abraham and just his family. And then Abraham's family expands, so God includes an entire nation of Jews. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus Christ comes and he rips the veil that separates. And now it's not just Abraham's family, it's not just the Jews, but now it's Gentiles, and now it's male, and now it's female, and now it's slave, and now it's free. God keeps adding people. 
And so often we're just like, this is too much. You've added enough people, you've been generous enough, stop already. But the kingdom of God does not move in its generosity based on our comfort. And so we find here God is saying, all of us are 11th hour laborers in need of grace. Here's the second thing which I recognize as I read this parable, and it's this, that as the workers accept the invitation of the landowner to labor, it is not their work which is rewarded, but it's their choice to accept the invitation. Let me say that again. I think this is crucial before I come to point number two. I was reading this parable, and I kept thinking, isn't this an issue, surely, of who worked the hardest? But as I read the story, I thought, it's not about who's worked the hardest. It's about the workers accepting the invitation of the landowner to come into the vineyard. So what has been rewarded equally is not their work. It's the fact that they accepted the invitation. And that radically changes the story. It's not their work, it's merely the fact that they accepted the invitation of the landowner. And this, I think, brings us to an important point, the second point, that our acceptance of God's invitation in our life is more consequential than our work in God's vineyard. And that's good news for somebody today who has been calculating and looking at their ledger of how much they think they have done for God and how much they will get in return. Just accepting God's invitation, according to this parable, is more consequential in how God's treat you than in the work you can do for God. Because again, my friends, this is not about how much work you can do for God in a transactional manner that will then give you merit in his kingdom. If you accept his invitation, God is going to be generous with you. And before I get to my final point, and I think perhaps the most important point, I want to ask a thorny question that I think this parable produces. And here's a question. And if you are not a Christian, this may be a question you perhaps have not asked. But if you have been a lifer, you've been in the church your whole life, you, you went to, the, to grade school, you went to academy, this may be a question you've asked because I've had young people ask me this question in Bible studies. Here's a question. If the landowner is going to equally reward people, whether you start at 6 a.m. or whether you start at 5 p.m., what's the point of coming to work early? And then we move that question to an application. What's the point of following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus when I'm young? Can't I go and live it up a little? Can't I be like Kanye? Can't I do some hip hop? Can't I party a little? And then when I'm older and I'm ready to settle down, get married, have kids, bring them to Sabbath school, I'm going to be equally rewarded. What's the point? 
What's the point of having sound business practices if I can just cut corners, make a couple of million, then repent, keep my million, tithe to the church a little, and then become a good Christian? What is the point if we are all going to be equally rewarded to turn up at 6 a.m. rather than coming at 5 p.m.? And that is a question that I have heard asked over and over again when I do Bible studies with young people and when people grapple with making a decision for Jesus. And here is what struck me as I read this story. I realized, first of all, that uh, this presumption that is in my heart and maybe it was in your heart as you read this parable as well comes from misreading the parable and seeing the parable in a transactional way as quid quo pro, because this is the culture we've grown up in. And so we misread it and we think the parable is transactional and it's only about rewards and about wages. And I realized that the distinct advantage for those who come earlier, for those who come at 6 a.m., for those who wake up early and go to the vineyard to work, the distinct advantage that they have, listen carefully, my friends, is not wages. It's not a bonus. It's not extra stock. It's not vesting early when the company becomes public. The distinct advantage that they have at the very bottom is this. Here it is, point number three. It's this, that their greatest reward and our greatest reward as apprentices of Jesus is being in the master's presence rather than having the master's presence. If you turn up at 6 a.m. and you are with Jesus, the Old Testament calls him the Rose of Sharon. We're told in Zephaniah that he is the kind of God who, when he sees you, sings over you. We're told that this Jesus is the one who would see you and who would go to a cross for you that he might rescue you and bring you into eternal life with him. This beautiful Jesus is the reward. And so when you come at 6 a.m., when you make a decision for Jesus when you're 17, when you're 15, and you don't think, ah, oh, let me live it up a little and then come back. It's because you have recognized the fragrance of Jesus and you want to linger in it. When you have a crush, you don't say, you know what? They said we can go out and they're free the whole day and I can come and pick them up whenever I want. You don't say, well, let me wait until an hour before curfew to pick them up. As soon as curfew is open, you are in your car. You're putting Febreze in your car to make sure it smells good. You are driving to pick them up and you want to spend as much time with them as possible because their presence is the reward. And this parable shakes us. And it tells us that if we have been looking at life with Christ as a transaction, if we have been thinking that perhaps heaven is the reward, we need to think again. If we find ourselves begrudging the generosity of God on behalf of other people, 
If we find ourselves toying with uh, the possibility of going then coming out, we have missed the point of being disciples of Jesus. And that is this, that the reward is not wages. It's not wages. It's the master's presence rather than the master's presence. And this is the same story in Luke 15 when the prodigal goes out and the older brother says, Dad, what are you doing giving him a party? I stayed, I worked from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. and he waltz in at 5 p.m. and you're giving him a party. And the older son, like many of us, and like the 12-hour worker did not realize that all of us, number one, are 11th-hour workers in need of grace, and number two, that being in the master's presence is greater than the master's presence. And so in the week to come, as you allow this parable to churn inside of you, argue with the parable, talk to Jesus, Find the places and the people in your heart who you are currently begrudging the generosity of God on their behalf because you have seen a relationship with him as being a transactional one rather than one based on Jesus being the prize, being the desire of ages. And as you allow the Spirit to work in your heart, find ways to reach out to pray for forgiveness, to repent of the ways that you have begrudged God's grace in the life of other people. And find ways to pray that God will allow you not to have an envious eye at his generosity, but an abundant eye. That we might become, as Walla Walla University, as friends of Walla Walla University, as visitors watching for the first time today, people who are not in a transactional relationship with God, but people who are in love with God, people who find his presence more enchanting than his presence. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.